tuned in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Live from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., you're listening to The Tidbit, brought to you by Curate. I'm your host and the CEO of Curate, Kim Bryden. Do you run a small business or have dreams to start one? Well, here at The Tidbit, we've got your back. Each week, we talk through tidbits of knowledge around starting or running a small business with a food and beverage lens. At the top of the show, we share one tidbit of what we're reading or learning and then dive deeper into that tidbit of knowledge with our in-studio guest. So one of the new sources we subscribe to for food industry news is called The New Food Economy. And their About Us reads, The New Food Economy is an award-winning nonprofit newsroom using independent, deep, and unbiased reporting to investigate the forces shaping how and what we eat. That's pretty powerful. So you may be thinking now, okay, Kim, so what is an example of a force shaping how and what we eat? What is on the horizon? Well, on our last episode of the Tidbit, we discussed food manufacturing, particularly in the Mid-Atlantic, and its future. And our guest, Sid Sharma of Wild Kombucha, and I discussed the idea of micromanufacturing, likening the rise of these micromanufacturing tongue twister hubs to the craft beer industry. Um, And how we, as a society, are moving away from... uh, big beer, big ag, and making our production processes more transparent and oftentimes localized. And to bring this idea back around to the new food economy, a recent article drew a comparison to the craft beer industry that I did not see coming. And it is for sure a force shaping how and what we will eat. Um, Just to quote this piece briefly... It reads, historically, food companies have appealed to potential companies by marketing the taste, price, and convenience of their products. But more recently, an appetite has emerged for products marked with credence qualities, attributes that suggest a food was produced in a way that's better for you or better for the earth. Preach. We can get along with that. So here's the comparison I did not see coming. In the branding of lab-grown meat, the idea is to position this cellular ag as a kind of idealistic upstart, an industry focused on taste, exclusivity, bespoke production to the meat industry, sort of like what craft beer is to Anheuser-Busch InBev. So far, the lab-grown meat industry's solution has been to use the term clean meat, emphasizing lab-grown's environmental footprint, which supporters say is only a sliver of the of the traditional meat production. But how many people, the article goes on to say, ask the question, but how many people want to think about offsetting their carbon footprint while enjoying their burger? So I would love to dive into this further because this is definitely on the horizon of where food is going and how businesses are being built for the future. I was thinking with a friend who works closely in agriculture recently, instead of saying, what are we producing today? Instead, what does the farm of 2040 look like? And then working backwards, what types of tools and technology do we need now or to start building now for the future? This is super interesting from an entrepreneurial standpoint because if you can understand the challenges or problems, again, of the future, how are you building solutions 
right now today. So from that entrepreneurial standpoint, talk about an industry that is causing, for lack of a better word, causing disruption. And I wanted to dive deeper into this culture shift further with my friend, Dr. Eric Schulze, VP of Product and Regulation at one of the leading um, cell-based meat companies, Memphis Meats. He joins us in studio today to talk manufacturing of lab-grown meat and its impact on our future. So we're going to be right back and sit down with him. You're listening to The Tidbit, and we're here with Dr. Eric Schulze, molecular and cellular biologist, genetic engineer, former federal biotechnology regulator, educator, and science policy strategist. Currently, his role is a senior science scientist at Memphis Meats, leading the scientific development and strategy of meat cell production. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Kim. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. i do anything for you. Oh, my gosh. You've been in San Francisco in the Bay Area. You're back in D.C. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be back in D.C., hot and swampy, <laughs> as usual. Um, San Francisco's no better right now. It uh, is cold, as usual. Uh, yeah. I was in a jacket oh. on July 4th. Right. I do not understand the weather in the Bay Area. <laughs> So we just mentioned at the top of the show on our last episode of the tidbit, we talked about food manufacturing in the mid-Atlantic, and now we have the pleasure of sitting down with you to talk about food production in a completely different context, both from a location perspective, obviously, like we just mentioned, you're in the Bay Area, but the actual then manufacturing of said product too. So can you tell us a bit more about your role of me- at Memphis Meats and also what is cell-based meat anyway? Sure. So when you think of meat, you probably don't think about it. It's the thing that you buy at the grocery store that you, you feed your families. It's this delicious product that people that over 95% of the planet eats every single day and has eaten for the past 2.6 million years on this planet. So not a lot of thought goes into what meat is. Um, and and my, my role is to think about meat in as many different ways as possible from the molecular through the political, through the regulatory, and through the consumer's lens. Uh, so as head of product and regulatory affairs at Memphis Meats, um, my job is to not only design the product that comes out, the meat that you actually would consume, but also uh, its role within society and the political spectrum. So um, we take a very unique approach to R&D at Memphis Meats in that regulation is built and baked into the R&D process, which is very different from many companies that work in the food space. Although most mature or incumbent industries um, bake regulatory into their large, already sort of very established processes. That's fascinating. Um, how did we get? How did we get here? Um, and like. What, did, what does this mean to sort of make meat? I'll even step back further. Yeah. Cell ba- cell-based meats. Um, so I'll just start off, and, and Kim and I have known each other for a while, and we've worked <laughs> in the food space together, full disclaimer, uh, as friends and colleagues. Cell-based meat is meat. 
Um, we call it cell-based to, to be transparent about the process by which it was produced. Uh, so instead of making, uh, making muscle inside of a, a cow or a pig or a chicken and then, and then slaughtering that animal to then harvest its tissues for what we consume, what we do, though, is we take the muscle directly out, the cells out of, you can imagine, just a small little biopsy taken out of that animal, and then we grow the cells directly to make muscle directly, to make fat tissue directly, all of that, to make the meat directly without having to grow an animal at all. So that this, yeah. is clearly revolutionary. And I imagine a lot of people who may not eat meat for animal rights reasons may be excited about this in some way. Sure. Uh, but you know, what's interesting is um, Memphis Meats isn't actively trying to, to market towards towards those. Sure, that, it's just right. for anybody. It's in fact because most people eat meat. You're right. So yeah. like it's it's serving a population of people who want to eat meat and maybe enhance consumer choice and, and allow innovation to come to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the current goal. Yeah. And previously, you worked as a federal regulator within the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And so I. I'm so fascinated about your role there and how it's led you to this role at Memphis Meats because you have such a passion for food science. And so that trajectory of your entrepreneurship journey is fascinating. Tell us more. Yeah. So to everyone listening, um, I think one key thing is that it's really good to not know how to do something to motivate you to, to become really good at something you already want to do or that you are good at. I, I was a very good federal regulator. Um, and I really had a huge passion for food science. I grew up in a family that cooked all the time. Um, and, and, you know, again, working with Kim, we had our own, um, wonderful sort of food entertainment show that we put on together. Yes, we did a little foreshadowing. We're going to talk about that in a bit. That's right. Um, but in reality, uh, what I wanted to do, and also as a former speechwriter, I've had a lot of different careers uh, that sort of have all put together. And I realized that the one thing I didn't know how to do really well was run a business. I really wanted to learn how to run a business from the ground up. And so how did I do that? I admitted I didn't know how to do it. And then I combined what I had previously done, uh, when I, what I call uh, public service in the private sector. and took my skills from the regulatory perspective on novel animal biotechnologies and, uh, and sort of in the food in the food space for the FDA. Mm-hmm. Combine that with my speech writing, uh, my science communication ability, and my marketing experience, and put that into a role that I uh, that I pitched and and was ultimately given at Memphis Meats early on. Wow, you know, people go get their MBAs and all of these higher education degrees, but ultimately, maybe the careers of the future are are you being an adaptive learner and coupling together all of these skills. Yeah, having a high openness index is the most important thing. I high think high openness index. That's correct, and the big five personality traits, which anyone can do right now. It's a highly validated scientific uh, uh, evaluation of your personality. Very, very basic level. You can understand a lot about your willingness to learn and accept novel ideas. Not that you have to like obey them or what have you. It's just your willingness to even hear them out. And living in in uh, the Bay Area. Uh, among lots of startups, and especially in the food space, where people are going to tell you what you know what they believe a certain product must be, and you have to be willing to accept not only their explanation from their their conventional perspective, but also be willing to build out an entire thing that has never existed. I'll highlight one thing: we have no textbook at Memphis Meats to play by. We are growing and producing meat 
from the ground up. Literally, there's no animal and there's no textbook to reference. So we have to build it from the ground. So being open to new ideas uh, is a core tenet of our team's ability. Uh, and we also highlight that with all the people that we hire as well. I think that is a fundamental um, attribute of entrepreneurship that a lot of people are very afraid of. You know, it was people are seeking out an expert or a roadmap or something to say, like, you're doing it right. You know, external validation. You've done it. You're on the path. But when you're building it, when you're uh, moving forward and building it at the same time, I'm sure it can be quite challenging. We are, you know, being a scientist really prepped me for a lot of this. I've realized in the entrepreneur space, and I never could have predicted this, uh, in that in, as, a, as a scientist, and I think artists are the same thing, that your job is to fundamentally um, define the unknown and define the unknowable. And so your job is to put down the paver of knowledge in front of you, stand the precipice of human knowledge, look out to the great beyond, admit that there's nothing in front of you that will help you, and then lay down the piece of knowledge that will allow you to step forth and go, I hope this is the right way. But no one will tell you if it's the right way or not. There is nothing to reference. And that is exactly what you do in entrepreneurism and, and building a business. And you just have to, you have to hope that you have a great team that's holding you from behind and doesn't let you fall. <laughs> As you jump into the abyss of the future you want to be building. That's correct. And have the fortitude to understand that there is no playbook mm-hmm. and that you will, you will make mistakes and that you can pivot if you need to. Absolutely. And, and to just bring it back to cell-based meat, again, I think our listener might be wondering, why would I make this switch? And, and where is the future of this industry going? Like, is this something I should actually care about or, or not? Sure. So, so cell-based meats um, provide one large potential advantage, I think, to, to conventionally produced products. And this is not to disparage conventionally produced products. Um, we've gotten very efficient over the last 12,000 years at making, making meat with animals. We are, it takes about 23 calories of, of food that you put in to make one calorie of, of animal, if you will. So, um, for a cow, um, and we're shooting for three calories in to one calorie up. That's on the order of efficiency of between, um, between uh, chickens and like insects and fish, like very efficient with the food that they eat, turning it in. So the cells directly. Mm. So if you extrapolate that out, the, the savings and energy to the inputs to the environment potentially um, could be, could be large in some estimates. And these are somewhat old numbers, but somewhere between 90, 95% reduction in greenhouse gases and water usage off the top of any livestock usage, just by growing the muscle tissue directly in a facility. Now, I'll add the other thing uh, that also the production process itself um, eliminates a lot of potential contaminants that you would see from traditionally. Like when you slaughter animals, there's a chance that bacteria from the outside of the animal gets on the inside of the animal, and the inside of the animal is where the meat is. Right. Right. So if you're producing it in, an, in a clean environment, like our, our production facility, there's almost zero chance for salmonella or E. coli contamination. Yeah, because you've created this very transparent process. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, and what I love about this is that, that the agricultural industry has been incredible at 
taking innovation and rapidly transitioning it into traditions that we all sort of assume. Like I'm holding this amazing pocket computer that transmits information at the speed of light across the globe through space. And we were communicating about this, this, this chat today. Um, and I completely take that for granted. Yeah. Um, that is incredibly good. That is great innovation, great technology, and great policy. Mm-hmm. When we can transition innovation into tradition. And moving away from innovation being only likened to the tech sector and now moving it into these other possibly outdated verticals and how do we add more transparency and efficiency to those processes. Um, We are sitting down with Dr. Eric Schultze, the VP of Product and Regulation at Memphis Meats. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with some more interesting tips on this disruptive industry. You're listening to The Tidbit, and we're here with Dr. Eric Schultze, VP of Product and Regulation at Memphis Meats. Hello again, Eric. Hello, Kim. You know, we were just talking about the the ability for an industry to um, be adaptive and have new processes implemented on more of these outdated, more possibly more bureaucratic verticals. And I recently read a book called The Third Wave. It's by Steve Case founder of AOL. Have you read it by any chance? I have not. Well, it starts off saying that he was arguably a part of the first wave, the building of said internet, and and it required a lot of public-private partnerships and government in order to create that infrastructure. And then we moved into the second wave of technology, getting everybody online, Google's, Facebook's of the world. And now that... AOL, plug for Steve Case. Yeah. (laughs) And now that... Um, all that technology is so prevalent, said computer in our pockets, we can now apply technology to, again, these possibly more outdated verticals and creating transparency and efficiency. And I would love if we could just dive a little bit further into that because in your quest for creating this whole new industry of cell-based meat, you've had to interface with a lot of different partners. And you were mentioning that Regulation and bringing a lot of stakeholders to the table is really important. Yeah. Uh, so there's a central um, theme to who Memphis Meets is, and we talk about this a lot, and we call it the Big Tent. The Big Tent is a concept that organizes internally and externally at Memphis Meets, and it is literally the idea that under this Big Tent that you could imagine, we are the, we are the there's a table and everyone can come sit at it. And that through a plurality of voices and through the admission of our own ignorance and our own openness, high openness, that we will learn how to build a better food system or a better business by asking from different people who would normally never speak to each other. Now, we've had investors. We've been lucky to have lots of investors. We've had uh, Bill Gates as an investor, Richard Branson, uh, Kimball Musk, Elon's brother, but also incumbent food producers like Cargill and Tyson. I'm and so glad you brought this up. Yes. They, they are. So you couldn't imagine, uh, you know, some of those are very mission-based. Some of those are strategic. Some of those are just pure venture. And we have looked at this and gone, each one of them can teach us something about building a better business. How do we build not just a vertical 
and, and frankly, not even look at it as a vertical, but build enterprise value across our sector and across within our teams at Memphis Meets. So we promote this viewpoint outwardly too, because we believe in it. Mm. So uh, also having that belief as, as individuals also, so and also with hiring on our team as well. Yeah, and I think that's a huge best practice I've gleaned from you in your time with Memphis Meets is when building a business, you have this strong identity. And, and no matter where the future holds for cell-based meat, you've been able to establish a team that um, in the face of challenge and potential setbacks from whatever stakeholder involved, you are still carrying forward because you have this strong identity. That's correct. Um, and, and that strong identity comes from a group of people that, use, that we, we strongly screen for humanity first, talent second. Um, and I think that, again, in, in Silicon Valley, it tends to be a lot more of the inverse. Mm. We tend to hire very, or it historically tends to hire uh, talent on a talent-based basis that, that will put up with a sort of any perceived lapse in humanity. Mm. We don't do that. Um, we put the person first, and they have to be a great human uh, because it makes them better at big tenting when we need them. Um, Ooh, I love that phrase. <laughs> um, and to just reference back, you were saying that a few of your investors, one is Tyson Food, American multinational corporation. You probably know their chicken and Cargill, which I did not know this, but they're the largest privately held corporation in the United States. Mm-hmm. So why are these companies or even some of the individuals you mentioned, why, why do they care about cell-based meat? Well, I, I mean, I can't speak for each one of the sure, investors. Sure, sure, sure. But I think in large part, one, all of our investors, whether it's explicit or not, really care about innovation mm. uh, and and are adopters of innovation in their own production processes. And I mean, if you're going to feed and supply meat food products to 330 million Americans, or and then let's not even exclude the, the most of the, the export markets, the supply chain, the, the manufacturing how you're going to get them, the even the communication structure between them is incredibly complex. And any efficiency you glean from that process, any innovation you can put, um, saves or increases, you know. Um, so I think that's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of them see the potential upside to enhancing consumer choice and allowing them to have this new option on the grocery store shelf. Mm. And that's our goal is to get this down, you know cost parity with with you know existing products um but ultimately i think the investors are interested because in large part this is this is a potential way forward for them as a company too i love that i mean i wonder if you have any advice for an entrepreneur that again referencing this third wave of steve case or this era that you are now in technology do you have advice for an entrepreneur who wants to really create more systems level change right Mm -hmm. it's not just I built an app to deliver my laundry. I built an app to deliver my groceries, right? There's more of this complexity. How do you hold that? Sure. Well, um, to, to borrow from one of my colleagues at work, you know, if you, if you, if you build a company off of, an, off of marketing data, I'm not saying this is all wrong, for example, um, then 99% of what's coming out right now is just uh, millennials that want their bat phone battery charged nine, you know, most of the time. So everything is some, some tether... Their, and I'm a millennial, so I'm throwing myself. I always bus. say millennials who are like missing their mom. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but more practically speaking, I look at it this way. I didn't get into this to um, solve a problem that didn't exist. Um, there's there's it was a let's look at the 
our co-founders who, who started this company said, looked at, one is a cardiologist from the Mayo Clinic and was doing, uh, injecting stem cells into human hearts, trying to regenerate them after, after heart attacks. Oh my gosh. The other was a poultry farmer who was tired of giving away his prized birds, but he happened to be a stem cell biologist on the side. Just what, what he, um, they both got together and they said, is there another way to do this? Is there a limit to the technology? How can I apply what I was learning in stem cells to, to making food? And the other was like, can I, can I apply my stem cell biology to making food? And the answer they got was, there's no technological limit. There's just a funding, a funding limit. Mm. When they realized that they weren't solving for a, a problem at that point, they were looking at the system as a whole and going, um, is there white space that we can fill that's actually more productive? Mm. Um, and we're off to the races. And as soon as we showed at Memphis Meets this was possible, now 20 companies have jumped into the fray mm-hmm. in the last year and a half. Yeah, have that big vision. Do not be afraid of it, listener. I think you need to to see, again, what is what does the world look like in 2040 and how are you starting to build those foundations now? Um, I do want to reference that outside of your job, you are a pretty amazing home cook slash obviously you're a food scientist. <laughs> And I love following your Instagram, um, how you take these sort of fan favorite creations, you dissect them, dissect their formation through science. And like you were mentioning earlier, fun fact, everyone, um, the skill of Eric's is in part how we met and became close friends. We used to run a food and science series called The Periodic Table. Plug, and plug. Yeah, it was amazing. I wish you were still here. And at the periodic table, you would digest food and newfound knowledge through a meal. And I really do miss that. I, re- such a good I, time. I do too. I really wanted to channel. So I, I've been influenced by, um, I mean, giving away my age, uh, Beekman's World, uh, which aired on Saturday mornings, of course, the competitor to Bill Nye. Okay. Um, and also Alton Brown on Good Eats. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what if, what if Alton Brown was an actual scientist? And that is how I channel my explanations of food and food science. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, well, you have all, literally for the entire time I've known you, you've always been on a mission to make the world more creatively nerdy. <laughs> right. My professional mission has always been leave this, better, leave this world a little better than whence I came. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you can achieve that many ways. And if you have that sort of uh, professional theme, you can do lots and lots of stuff mm-hmm. and not be afraid to pivot in your career. In fact, you can combine your your skill sets as we've talked about yes into amazing outcomes if you just simply have a theme to your identity mm-hmm. as an individual as a company memphis meets has a strong identity all of that allows you to pivot where you need to and ultimately even if you need to compromise on really great decisions as well that's beautiful well in closing i'm wondering if you've made anything recently you're proud of or advice maybe for our listener on how to bring food science into their home or their business um, so to the first question, uh, because I'm in DC, uh, Kachipuri, cause Compass Rose uh, makes one of my favorite things on the planet, but I also really love Compass Rose on 14th and T Northwest. That's correct. Um, and I love making Georgian cheese bread, which is Kachipuri. And there's like regional variants that I also experiment on. Um, but bringing food science into their home. Oh, um, there's a couple of books on this, but I think the biggest way is to not cook with recipes because, um, so learning to cook with by principle, uh, rather than by recipe is a lot harder to do, but you end up increasing. What does that mean by principle? So, um, if you know why an egg has a yolk and why it has a white, um, that can aid your understanding of how to use something. If you never have an egg, for example, or if you are using an egg in a recipe, if you wanted to adjust something. It's not just, I have to go look up a recipe now, which I admit is very easy. 
Um, instead, you are going, well, if I'm making an egg white, egg yolks have uh, lecithin in them. Lecithin is in an emulsifier. I don't want emulsifiers. That would crush my the, the wonderful uh, meringue that I'm trying to make. So I need to make sure there's no... That's why they say there's no egg yolks in, in meringues. Mm. Um, so... Trying to not be boring here to your to your listeners, um, what <laughs> that I suggest what I suggest is that you do not spend time studying a recipe, trying to understand, but trying to understand why that particular ingredient is in there in the first place. Um, why do we have eggs in cake? Why is why can you eat not eat cookie dough raw? Do people think it's the eggs in there? It's not. It's the flour. People don't know why that you're supposed to cook flour. Um, what is flour's role in all of this? Uh, why is it turned into a magical thing that that makes gluten when you add water? We could talk for hours. I'm going to stop there. Wow. I love this train of thought of whys. <laughs> so if somebody wants to learn more about you and follow along on your journeys, how can they see more about you, Eric? Uh, well, a uh, plug for my company, if you happen to uh, follow anything, just memphismeats.com or memphismeats in general mm-hmm. on social. Uh, and I'm at Science Eric with one E. Amazing. Thank you for being here. This show is based on a biweekly newsletter that we send out at Curate. It's called The Tidbit, of course. And in it, we discuss what we're reading, eating, drinking, listening to, and learning. Five quick morsels of information to get you in the know and on top of your game. So if you're eager to learn more tidbits of knowledge about the food and beverage industry or entrepreneurship lessons learned, sign up today. Head over to curate.co, C-U-R-E-A-T-E dot co. And until next time, listeners, remember to scale thoughtfully and source locally. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.